0: is the U.S. southern border, a war zone. What is America's origin story? We'll talk about the mythology of America from SDPB Radio. It's Wednesday, August 30th. This is In The Moment. Coming up this hour, Michael Card is with us for our Dakota Political Junkies conversation. We'll talk about Governor Kristi Noem, heroism, adversity, and the story of America. We explore life on Mars from a lab in the Black Hills We'll hop on board the train at Hill City for a ramble through those hills. Author Craig Johnson discusses sense of place in fiction and how devoted readers react when their favorite character doesn't get a high enough page count. Plus, the National Music Museum opens new exhibits. We'll preview that later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh, you're in the moment. As school bells ring across South Dakota, it may feel like summer is over, but heat and humidity are sticking around for a few more months, so are the traditional summertime pests, mosquitoes. Those annoying little insects are also carriers of a potentially dangerous disease, West Nile virus. As we enter the peak of West Nile season in a state that usually has the most cases, let's talk about prevention and what to watch for. Anita Baravaja is an epidemiologist with the South Dakota Department of Health, and she is with me on the phone. Welcome, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Lori, for having me on this show. Yeah, let's talk about prevention. You know, we all love to spend time outdoors during the summer time, so helping raise awareness on when West Nile high really helps remind people to take precaution. To avoid infection. So there are several measures that um, people can take to reduce their risk of being bitten by an infected mosquito. So first is to look around your property to see if there is any standing water and to dump out any standing water. This can be in bird baths, buckets, you know, backyard ponds or children's swimming pools um, because mosquitoes breed in water. So first, you do what you can um, to get rid of mosquito breeding sites on your property. Second is to use mosquito repellent if you're going to be outside. We recommend to wear um, repellent-containing teeth. And the other thing that um, people should try to do when possible is to wear protective clothing. So a lightweight, um, long sleeve shirt, for instance, um, will help um, protect you from mosquito bites. And also take caution... um, you doing this and don't when you're out and about. Um, precautions are usually um, especially beneficial for people at um, increased risk um, due to medical conditions such as cancer, diabetes, hypertension, kidney disease, heart disease, and so on.
0: All right. So taking care of that standing water around your property, using that DEET repellent when you're outside, that protective clothing, and taking precautions, especially if you're immunocompromised, are really important tips. Tell people a little bit about um, what happens when someone is infected with West Nile virus. How do you know you have it?
1: Sure. So um, a good news is people who get bitten by infected mosquito may have no symptoms whatsoever. In fact, about 80% of individuals bitten by infected mosquito will show no symptoms, so that is good. However, 20% of the individuals will develop mild to moderate food-like symptoms such as fever, chills, body aches, and rash. And some of those individuals, about 1%, will develop severe neurologic illnesses such as encephalitis or um, meningitis. And later, it's going to be like inflammation of the brain or spinal cord. So symptoms to look out for neurologic infection include stiff neck, confusion, paralysis, coma, and even death. So usually West Nile's symptoms occur 3 to 14 days after being bitten by an infected Gilex mosquito, which is the primary um, vector for West Nile virus in South Dakota. So if you have bitten by a lot of mosquitoes in the past 4 to 5 days, watch out for those symptoms, especially fever, chills, and headache.
0: Okay, so 20% of people this is going to affect, which means most of us are on the clear, but we're looking for those symptoms, the stiff neck, the confusion, for the most extreme, which is only 1% is what I heard you say. And how, um, if you are a cancer patient, for example, and you're getting treatment, um, you're already experiencing symptoms from that treatment, when should you talk to your doctor and say, you know, hey, this might be something else I'd like you to consider test you know the test for for example
1: sure um i would suggest contact your provider if you're having fever um along with stiff neck or confusion um that could be the reason that you might be having a neurologic infection like encephalitis or meningitis so yes do reach out to your provider if you're experiencing fever plus um stiffness or confusion Tell us about our current
0: numbers in South Dakota. What are we seeing for cases right now?
1: Sure. So South Dakota now has 29 human cases in 20 counties, and eight counties with positive mosquito pool for West Nile virus have been reported as of this morning.
0: 29 cases cases statewide as of this morning? Did I hear you correctly? Yes. Okay. That's correct. So what happens with the Department of Health when you identify that there are cases in a county? Are there more prevention efforts that are engaged, or what kind of uh, mitigation measures might happen?
1: So um, we do have our West Nile dashboard along with the preventive strategies up on our DOH website, sd.doh.gov. So you can look up... website to keep updated on your um, West Nile information, and we also provide um, um, funding for mosquito control district to control their mosquito um, activities around the area where we have identified positive mosquito We have those funding um, given out um, to local mosquito control district to take preventative and control measures.
0: All right. So we'll send people to doh.sd.gov. We'll put a link up on our website as well for that West Nile dashboard. And we've been talking to South Dakota Department of Health epidemiologist Anita Baravaja. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Baravaja. We appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, what do you picture when you picture the Black Hills of South Dakota? Beautiful landscapes, the historic streets of Deadwood, iconic sculptures like Mount Rushmore or Crazy Horse. Well, now when you picture the Black Hills, you can also picture Mars. That's right, the Red Planet. Dr. Gochu ustinik Ustinisek is an associate professor at South Dakota Mines, and she created the volcanic conditions of Mars in her lab, even produced some Martian minerals right there in Rapid City. She's with us now from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital studio in Rapid City. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi. S- say your name for us because I got it a little bit wrong. Help us understand <laughs> it, please.
2: <laughs> you did a pretty good job. It is Gocha Ustinisek.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Tell me a little bit about your interest in Martian minerals to start out with.
2: <laughs> so, people often think that, um, you know, it's a different planet uh, and, you know, d- different things might be happening. But we are really looking to the geologic history of doesn't matter Earth, Mars, or Moon, um, the processes that is causing the volcanoes erupt or changing the rocks that we see on the surface is the same. doesn't matter where it is because everything behind that is the chemistry. And um, my love for that uh, initially made me to be an interdisciplinary scientist. Uh, Some of my research is about the terrestrial volcanoes and some of them about the lunar and Martian samples.
0: Wow. So we haven't known that there was volcanic activity on Mars for very long, have we? Is that a fairly new discovery? Or is it just uh, new to me? It's just new to me.
2: (laughs) we have we do not see volcanoes erupting there, but okay. we see craters and definitely some of the remnants of the volcanic activity with the orbiter and the rover missions. Yes, but remember that we do not have any samples as of today from Mars. There is a perseverance uh, um, orbiter, and then uh, that that rover is still as of today in charge collecting soil, atmosphere, as well as the rock samples. But until that, all we have is no physical samples, some meteorites, uh, as well as the chemical information of the surface. Think about that. You are trying to understand the geologic terrain from air without uh, literally not having any chance to collect any sample.
0: Okay, and yet? you have been able, in your lab, to do what? Explain what's happening there.
2: That is the beauty of experiments, or (laughs) I'm an experimental petrologist, or experimental volcanologist, so what we do is, with using the information that we have from the rover and the orbiter data, we can make the rock compositions, the magmas beneath the uh, Martian surface uh, in our lab we can basically synthesize them chemically uh, by following a recipe. That is no different than following uh, your favorite recipe. Mm -hmm. And then once you make those uh, compositions chemically, what we go ahead and put them into my furnaces. These are very hot ovens that can go up to 1,400 Celsius at various pressures. So we can go ahead and melt them. So basically what we are doing is we are melting those initial compositions to make a magma, right? And then we are bringing them to the surface and let them to erupt. And as they erupt, whatever it was dissolved in them as the vapor bubbles, they come out. And then they start, uh, as they reach to the surface, they start cooling and precipitating and altering whatever is in the surface of the Mars, So that is what we see in the rover uh, and orbiter data. The remnants, when I say remnants, the precipitate, the alteration minerals. But we don't know how they come to that point. And that's exactly what we are simulating in my lab.
0: Okay, so the remnants and that we might see from the Mars rover, they match the remnants of what you've created in your lab. Yes. Uh, yes,
2: very much so. A plus. I, the, I got and it. The f- <laughs> <laughs> and the funny part of it, Martian meteorites, which we think they are Martian meteorites, are not showing this diversity, these diverse mineral uh, compositions, but our experiment shows them, because in a in a way, in geology is like uh, understanding a situation after the action is finished, like trying to resolve a crime. Sometimes you have a body, sometimes you have a knife, sometimes you have the, um, some of the scene left behind. Our goal with experiments is to recreate that situation to figure out how did we come to that point. And especially when we don't have a sample from a, a planet, that's the best way to be able to do this. All right.
0: So what is, you have this research published in the Journal of Meteor
2: Meteoritics and planetary science. This is my student, uh, Alexander Rogaski, who was only a master's student, uh, who did this research. Uh, with me, uh, and um, he completed all of the experiments and published our basically a Martian femoral like we see in the Yellowstone. We see these things a lot on the Earth everywhere. But he simulated this in the lab and exactly matched to what we have been seeing uh, from the orbiter data or the mete- meteoritics discrepancy that we cannot anymore see. So, meteoritics and planetary was very, very excited about his research yeah. and uh, wanted to publish it. Not only publish it, but also use his experimental methodology as a, a picture for the front page of the issue. Hey, Nice. Okay. So <laughs> is
0: there things that we are learning about volcanoes in Yellowstone or volcanoes in
2: Hawaii that are applicable here? Absolutely. That's the beauty of it. What we are learning from this process is exactly the same. We can apply to ore deposits. We can apply on earth. We can apply to Yellowstone. We can apply to volcanoes in Hawaii, which I also uh, study. So the story is the same story. Think about a Coke bottle. I am opening the Coke bottle and releasing those gases, which was initially dissolve in that coke, right? Yeah. As the coke bottle raises to the, the the coke raises to the surface, all those gases come out and they start to interact to the surface and change the mineralogy. And doesn't matter what planet it is, the process is the same. So what we learn from this planet is applicable directly to the Earth on any place that we see this. And these flutes or the bubbles are very important because they carry some important elements like ore deposits and they deposit in the places that were refined. We they are economically important minerals. So it has actually an importance for that too. So people uh, uh, nowadays, my colleagues in the mining department are thinking about, is it possible to do mining on Mars? Oh, <laughs> wow. Wow. All right,
0: so Dr. Gochu, we're going to leave it there for now, but hopefully we'll be talking with you in the future about your research all happening there at South Dakota Mines. Thank you so much for stopping by.
2: Thank you for inviting me. We will take Have a, a great day.
3: B- You're
0: listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. I'm having a good time in here with. Uh, Mike Card, who is a professor of political science and professor emeritus at the University of South Dakota. He is our Dakota political junkie voice for today, but not just a voice, a whole a whole person here, including a tie and a nice button-down shirt. Welcome, thank you.
3: I'm I'm happy to be here and it, it at least gives me twice a week to get uh, dressed up.
0: <laughs> to get cleaned up, you clean up good. <laughs> All right. We've been talking a little bit about you you sent me an email and you mentioned this idea of an American mythology and some of the stories that we hear from our governor, um, other people, of course, too. But our governor comes to mind about what it means to be an American and how adversity plays into that. So. I want to get your thoughts a little bit, but uh, we haven't talked about this before the show, and I thought of a couple things that came to my mind, so we're going to play a quick clip here, which you've heard before on the show um, when I discussed this with Seth Tupper of South Dakota Searchlight. He wrote about it um, in his opinion column on that website as well, but this is Governor Kristi Noem at the NRA um, convention, and she's telling a story about her father. Take a listen.
4: So I remember being only about nine or ten years old and we had hunted all day, miles and miles from camp in the high country, in the Bighorn Mountains, when my dad turned to me and he said, Christy, hunt your way back to camp. I'm gonna go around this ridge and I'll meet you there at dark. And he disappeared over the ridge. Now, to a 10-year-old girl, this was terrifying. And as strange noises came and darkness fell, I had to rely on my instincts and my horse to find my way back to our tent. Now, years later, Mom shared with me that my dad had followed me at a safe distance all the way back to camp to make sure that I got there safe. Now, before you get all warm and fuzzy on him, I also want to tell you that he made bear noises the whole time he was following me. (laughs) Scratching trees and growling at me. So, you know, he made sure I lived, but he wanted me to be lived scared. Um, But he made me stronger. And it also made me realize that I could conquer challenges that were put in front of me.
0: All right. I've come back to that story a few times, partially because it's such a—she um, tells it so well. I mean, it's a memorable story. You can tell the crowd is into the story. It feels a little bit like a South Dakota story. A lot of us had parents who would do sort of strange you know, things that we see differently when we're adults. But as a governor— as a member of Congress, this takes on a sort of different thing because it becomes an origin story and it becomes almost, you know, mythic in its in its proportions.
3: Yeah, I think it's part of Kristi Noem's personal origin story that this is part of what made her who she is, and I think that uh, she takes that as part of her identity and has made policies according to that. I'll call it a mythology, not because it's a falsehood, but because it's a myth. Myths were designed by our ancestors to try to teach us differences between right and wrong. Political scientists call it political culture, but in certainly, you know, I would believe that we deal with adversity because heroic individuals bravely fight against injustice to overcome adversity, and I think that's one of Christy Nome's defining characteristics. And uh, it, it has led itself in, in terms of slight offshoots to uh, what Mike Rounds put forward as one of the essential tenets of government was to take care of people who couldn't take care of themselves. Now, sometimes that gets altered slightly to be who should take care of themselves, but don't. And then we use that to deny benefits to certain people. But for a large part, these mythologies are broad enough that we can be motivated by them, and they tell us what right from wrong is in terms of action.
0: I want to play another clip, and I'm going to ask you a question as if I was a student in your classroom, because I am in your classroom right now. Do, do <laughs> I get to it turn is. it around like I
3: do in my classroom? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <and make> Absolutely. <laughs> um, this is a little bit of Governor Christy Nome on the U.S. southern border earlier this month talking about the problems with the border there. Take a listen here.
4: And, and what we're literally witnessing is a war zone. And it's astonishing to me to watch it perpetuated by our federal government and by President Biden. When I sent my National Guard because I recognized what we were facing, that this really is a war. It's a war for our country and for our federal laws that have been passed in our Constitution. They are threatening our sovereignty right now.
0: All right. So my question to you, Mike Card, and, and this is not the first time Governor Christy Nome has said um, what's happening at the U.S. southern border is a war. It is a war zone. Um, When I hear her, I'm the student, now you're the professor, telling the story about her bear and her father, there is no bear in that story. And she admits that. She knows that as an adult. When we hear the same person, the same voice tell us there is a crisis, there is a war, there is a whatever, do we tend then as the people who are following her say, is there really a bear? Or are you making scratching noises here? Like, when is the, where is the line between um, political leaders, beyond Governor Chris, um, stirring up awareness and outrage and, and, you know, raising money and getting votes and trying to solve policy uh, problems, which they all do, and just trying to scare us? And when do we start doubting? that someone is telling us the truth. There's a lot in that question, but I think you can well, find there is, something relevant there.
3: When yeah. I was at my best as an instructor, I would turn that question around and say, if what we're looking for is what does she mean by these terms that we should take action on, what is a war zone? And so when we're looking at what is a war zone, we can compare it. You know, uh, I'm I'm a child of World War II veterans. Both of my parents are buried in national cemeteries. Uh, you know, my father has a, had a, was awarded a Silver Star, and a, a war zone <laughs> meant you were being shot at. And he uh, was a spotter pilot and flew at treetop levels, so uh, he got shot at a lot. That's a war zone. That's that's my recollection of what a war zone is the border, as put forward by a, a presentation sister, suggested this isn't a war zone. This isn't Ukraine. This is a group of people who are fleeing troublesome places and trying to come to the United States for sanctuary. So when we look at what's the difference between those competing interpretations of a situation, we can see that there are Drugs coming across the border, although the Border Protection Service indicates that most of them are coming across in trucks, actual trucks, not people bringing them across because that would take quite a few. But there is a a crisis situation at the border because there are many more people wanting entrance into the United States than law allows but we also have a Congress who has to change the law according to the U.S. Supreme Court. And Congress is pretty well deadlocked. So the war zone exists in multiple places. I'm still not getting at your question, which is when do we move from mythology to reality? And for many of us, the distinction is really subtle because it's a useful metaphor.
0: And when you look at... So I, I, just Googled earlier today, is the U.S. southern border a war zone to find out what people were saying about this, and a lot of people were like, it's a, it's a pseudo war zone, it's an imagined war zone, it's a mock war zone because of hyper militarization. So there were a lot of, I guess I would, you know, classify them as on the opposite political spectrum of as our governor saying this whole labeling it something matters so as a political scientist when you if we could come we can't come to a common definition of what a war zone is here probably but if we can what does that change that change funding that change constitution the application of a constitution on the southern border what does it change if you start believing that something is a war zone
3: well if, if we believe it is a war zone then we have to do something about it. Uh, uh, and the implication of it being a war zone is, is we are being invaded. And certainly that was language that President Trump and his, uh, compatriots in his administration wanted us to believe that there were tens of thousands of people moving across Mexico trying to get in the Southern border. In total, that may be the case, but again, uh, Facts matter, (laughs) and and when we run into these interpretations that they're trying to get us to act in a certain way, what choices do we have? If there's an invasion, we need to repel the invasion, which gives credence to building a wall, although the wall is certainly penetrable.
0: So if you were arguing for Governor Gnome's point, you would say that it's not so much the innocent people. The enemy here is the cartels. Right. And they're using these innocent people to push over the border and do damage to the U.S. sovereignty. Does that change the conversation at all?
3: Well, I, th- I think that's part of the attempt to change the conversation from the one that the presentation sister was trying to make, that mm-hmm. these, are, these are victims in, in,
0: refugees. and
3: refugees.
0: Yeah. These are refugees, not enemy right. combatants, for sure. Oh, nothing. well, nothing's for sure. I'm nothing t- I, I, I for retract sure. for sure. Well, <laughs>
3: you know, there, there are various ways that we have of looking at what our government should do. You know, if mm-hmm. we're looking at the climate crisis, we're looking at uh, what uh, some historians have called cornucopians, individuals who believe that, you know, human ingenuity will overcome the barriers of the changing climate and will figure out a way to make energy be clean burning and, and, and we can continue on as we have continued in the past and just technology and human ingenuity, inventing new technology will save us. Finitarians were like Thomas Malthus that, oh, my gosh, things are terrible. <laughs> we have to do something about this. And, we, you know, in, in the climate changes, is, is we need to keep the temperature from rising.
0: Is there a bear or is there no bear? That's right. that's
3: really it and it goes
0: back to what you said before facts 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 matter matter. at this point mythology helps tell the stories helps make it memorable but it's the facts that matter I want to touch on one more thing and I know like we're going to leave that in a super unsatisfying place for everyone but send us an email in the moment at sdpb.org and and answer this question like what how do you define a war zone and uh, is that what you think is happening at the U.S. southern border and how does it impact us I'd love to hear what you have to say um Jessica Castleberry, senator from District 35, I wanted to get your thoughts on this story not being over. She was. Um, can you explain in a like a sentence what happened to Jessica Castleberry with federal COVID money that she received for her daycare? Attorney General Marty Jackley did an investigation. She should not have gotten that money. She has reached an agreement. She's been very cooperative. Reached an agreement to pay back that money because it was not supposed to go to her because she was a lawmaker. That's correct. Now, all the money that made it through her to people in need, they get to keep that money, as I understand it. But there is a big question mark about lawmakers and conflict of interest. What's next in this story, do you think?
3: Well, this is a constitutional provision, uh, Article Three, Section 12, that specifically prohibits lawmakers from benefiting, I'll use, I'm interpreting here, from benefiting from legislation that they pass. It's specifically designed to present, prevent dealing with yourself. This was a very common practice with lawmakers in our territorial days. So, when our constitution makers were drafting a constitution for the state of South Dakota, they included this provision in there to prevent even the appearance of self dealing. Now, uh, as, as you noted, Senator Cashelberry apparently requested an opinion from the governor's office about whether she could apply for these funds as a legislator and was apparently told yes, or at least she she still applied for the funds and received them. Governor Nome most recently made a, ref, made a referral to the attorney general who conducted an investigation of which you said Senator Castleberry was fully participative and cooperative is, is what the attorney general said in in the investigation and they reached an agreement that she would pay back a large portion of the funds not necessarily those that had been paid to uh, her employees of her mm-hmm. daycare center okay the this i mean that's that's a long and complicated story but it isn't over by any means yeah. because there's been reporting done that there are a number of legislators who have also benefited from this distribution of federal funds and this, that these include two members whose spouses are state employees because the Constitution says that you can't benefit directly or indirectly, and that indirectly, indirectly yes. <laughs> also uh, captured in its net a, another state legislator whose spouse runs uh, a program for the state of South Dakota and therefore receives an appropriation. Now, was it specifically designed for them by law? Not necessarily. Just as the salaries of the spouses weren't specifically designated for those individuals by law. But there was an appropriations law that then makes it so that you you shouldn't be voting on issues that benefit you directly or indirectly. What does indirectly mean? And so the legislature may try to define what indirectly means, this will probably be settled by lawsuit and whether.
0: Because to this point, you know, having it decided by the lawmakers, the intent of this is that lawmakers aren't, they might decide. If you were going to be skeptical, you'd say they might not decide. They're going to decide for their own benefit, right. possibly, is what you would be skeptical and say, or what you want to guard against.
2: Th- that that is what you
3: would, I mean, that's yeah. the meaning of that particular section is to avoid self dealing. So anything that looks like self-dealing is going to be seen as self-dealing.
0: Now, somebody out there is saying, you know, this is a citizen legislature. They all have full-time jobs. Um, Everybody knows everybody in the state. It's a small state. There's going to be a certain amount of streams crossing here and there and everywhere. I'm not sure I accept that as a free pass for anybody at this. But this is important stuff to figure out exactly what is right and what is wrong.
3: Right, and, and the determinant of what's right and wrong is ultimately going to be the South Dakota Supreme Court. Uh, but, you know, so that I guess that's why I'm saying that there's yeah. a lawsuit which may or may not change the court's interpretation. One of the, I mean, the, this has been around a long time, 1920. Yeah. The most recent two have been 19, uh, 2001, with Pitts versus Larson, where as an employee of these... South Dakota State Extension Service was, wanted to, was a member of the South Dakota legislature and wanted to be paid. And Auditor Vern Larson said, no, there's this constitutional provision. That's what an auditor does, <laughs> is determine the legality of expenditures, at mm-hmm. least in South Dakota, that's their primary job. And then in 2001, Governor Noem asked for an advisory opinion of the South Dakota Supreme Court, which is a unique provision that Illinois and South Dakota have that you can ask the Supreme Court to advise you for solemn matters, and this is certainly a solemn matter, uh, whether legislators could receive that early COVID relief money, and they said, no, no, you cannot. The So where we're at is, it's going to be back in their hands. How it gets there is the real question.
0: All right. Mike Card, Professor Emeritus from the University of South Dakota, political scientist, one of our um, just really smart and, and brilliant Dakota political junkies. We're going to change the show a little bit. We're not going to bring you that Craig Johnson interview that I talked about at the top of the hour, but tune in on Friday because Craig Johnson is going to be here to talk about his latest book. Um, We're going to have the South Dakota Music Museum here in just a minute. But Mike Card, thank you so much.
3: Thanks for inviting me.
0: Let's take a moment now for Life Spent on the Rails. A lot of South Dakotans have created vacation memories on the 1880 train in the Black Hills. The historic tourist attraction is a staple. For Cesario Mesa, it is more than a summertime memory. It's his career. He has worked for 18 years on the train and its tracks. The railroad operations supervisor has even helped reconstruct the number 108 engine. Let's hear from Cesario about what's unique about his workplace.
5: Um, I did ride this train uh, when I was a kid growing up here in in the late 70s early 80s Um, so it was actually kind of nice to uh, come back and be able to work on it its official name is the black hills central railroad and it's known as the 1880 train well i've done a little bit of everything i started out as a fireman then uh, took on the engineer position uh, after a while of doing that, I did uh, conductor and brakeman positions. I, I always tell people it is an easy job. You just have to pay attention to everything at once. Um, you know, on, on my side of the cab as an engineer, there's about a dozen different valves and brake handles and, and the throttle and all those things that I have to keep track of on, on just my side. Um, You know, we carry about 400 people at at our uh, peak capacity per train load. Um, So, yeah, it is a bit of responsibility. I've I've, uh, met quite a few wonderful people along the way. Um, It's not just, like, across South Dakota or across the states. It's from all over the world. I did not get married on the train, but I did meet my wife while working at the train not not much to that one Uh, she was also working at the train at the time and we just kind of started hanging out quite a bit the the number 108 uh, engine that we got in uh, we got that in 2016 and I was part of the crew that helped um, tear that down uh, into many small parts repair what needed to be repaired And then start putting it back together it's it's a pretty cool thing it's it's like almost starting from nothing because when when we got that in in uh, 2016 it was in a bunch of different parts it came in on four large heavy haul tractor trailers Um, there was a tree growing out of of part of the engine you know it it had sat out in the woods for about 60 years um, just rusting away and it's my home. I, I was born and raised quite a bit around the Black Hills and, and this is a pretty fun job. You know, if, if you can be where you want to be and do something fun, I, I think that's, you know, a, a big part of getting through life.
0: Dakota Life's Greetings from Hill City premieres on SDPB-TV on September 5th. Find out more at sdpb.org slash dakotalife. More in the moment is after the break on listener-supported SDPB radio. a moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Seven new galleries recently debuted at the National Music Museum in Vermilion. The new exhibits highlight a host of instruments, objects, and the stories behind them. With more than 15,000 instruments, the National Music Museum is one of the world's finest collection of musical instruments. Dwight Vaught is director of the Music Museum, and he's with us now from SDPB Studios on the campus of the University of South Dakota in Vermillion, Dwight, welcome to the program, thanks for being here.
6: Thank you very much.
0: This is a massive project that's taken years of planning and donor support and expansions and all kinds of things. So tell us where we're at right now, what has just opened
6: uh, well, we opened the first all of the first floor galleries. There are two floors in the museum, and so we're we're doing our best to do this as a pay-as-you-go uh, expansion and renovation. So we finished all of the first floor, and that's what we reopened last weekend, as you said. All of the first floor, the seven galleries that are part of the first floor. So we couldn't be more excited about that. The museum closed in 2018 for what was a, about a two- or three-year planned expansion, and world events uh, intervened, and it just has taken us longer. So we couldn't be more excited about where we're at today.
0: So you've been through a pandemic and supply chain shortages and all kinds of, <laughs> of innovation. So for people who have just like, you know, this has fallen off their radar and they no longer know it's there, let's invite them back into the space. What is the mission and the purpose of this uh, world-class museum in Vermilion?
6: Sure. It, it our mission really is to explore and to enjoy and to preserve the world of musical instruments. And you think about musical instruments, we, you know, a lot of us collect something, mm. uh, but in in the case of our founder Arnie B Larson who came to South Dakota in the 1960s, His passion was musical instruments, the one-offs, the the quirky, the uh, collections and those types of things, and that's what he was known for. So when he came to the University of South Dakota then, he asked the uh, administrators at USD, do you have a place where you can house my original collection of about 2,000 to 2,500 instruments? And they said, sure. So They they had a room in the Carnegie, what was then the Carnegie Library. It is still a Carnegie Library, but has now been turned into the museum, and since then, we have grown in the past 50 or 60 years, as you mentioned, to have almost 15,000 uh, musical instruments in our, in our collection. So we, it, it's, it's been a process for us. A few years ago, the Board of Trustees of the Music Museum decided to go on this planned closure so they could uh, rethink about how we need to bring our collections up to date and how we need to present them in terms of the displays and the exhibitions. So initially it was planned, uh, but it, was, it has just taken a little bit longer to unfold.
0: All right. So you can laugh at this if you want to, but I have in my personal collection, my daughter's first recorder from third grade and my grandmother's piano and my trombone that I played in high school. And one of the reasons I have all those these things, um, which I do not need at all, but I still have (laughs) are the stories. I mean the piano of course is a beautiful piece of furniture but I don't I don't play but it's the story of it coming to Lake Park Iowa and you know traveling across the the prairie with her at certain times and it's the memories I have of my daughter in elementary school or my memories of marching band these instruments have incredible stories tell me how important some of the provenance and storytelling is behind items in this collection
6: Well, you you really hit the nail on the head right there because the stories and the connection are really everything about the collection at the National Music Museum. As you mentioned, it could be wrapped around just your family or it could be multi-generational in in the family. It uh, It could cross ethnicities. It can cross musical instruments, can cross migrations of people from Europe to the United States, for example, or from Africa to the United States. And so that, that's part of what we want to preserve and how we want to inspire people, is that it's not just about that recorder that's sitting at your home and your piano and your trombone, but it's about the stories and how then they might be able to be passed on, if those are still playable instruments, and are they, are they worthy to be passed on to the, the next generation, and then what happens after that. So the National Music Museum has acquired several collections where, the uh, say, a matriarch and a patriarch of a family have passed on and the succeeding generations don't have as much interest in trying to preserve them locally in their home. So they find a place like the National Music Museum that if we decide to accept it in our collection, not only can we preserve it, we can care for it, we can uh, propagate the stories, and, and we can make sure that it's on display and exhibit as, as much as possible. So, again, we are sort of a repository to do all of that work.
0: Everyone I have talked to, when they go through this museum for the first time, or even if they've been a dozen times, they say, you don't understand what's in there (laughs) until you go, and then you're standing in front of this. Tell me about some of your rare items or some of those uh, moments where you find that visitors say, I had no idea this was in Vermilion.
6: Well, I'm, I'm looking for those new points of inspiration because as we reopened these galleries and people coming through, we're hearing them exclaim that all the yeah. time. I didn't know you had this. I wasn't sure about this. So the this could be one of the earliest keyboards in, in existence. We have a, a, a keyboard collection, but there was a there's a particular one called the Antunish keyboard, uh, which came from Portugal and is, is a very. Uh, pivotal step in the development that went from the harpsichord to the keyboard. Now you have to be a little bit of a music aficionado to to understand uh, some of how this worked, but we have one of the earliest representations. It is complete, it is intact, and it is original from about the uh, 16th century that came to us. And it is still a playable keyboard. So a few months ago, we have a, a famous keyboardist that came over from Italy who knew that we had this keyboard in our collection, and she came here specifically to play this keyboard. And so it's really phenomenal. Again, we're talking about connections. We're talking about whether you're an artist or a musician that knows about the collection or whether you're somebody who just likes to look at, for example, a Joan Baez guitar, which is a beautiful piece of architecture in itself. But when you then infuse it with the artist that Joan Baez was, is... Uh, then it takes on a whole new meaning. When you think about uh, Antonio Stradivari, know a lot of people know the name Antonio Stradivari as a prime Italian luthier, but they've not been close up with a Stradivari violin, a Stradivari mandolin, uh, uh, or or other Stradivari guitar, for example. We have all of those sitting in our collection right now on display at our, our 50th anniversary exhibit. So you can look up close at what makes a Stradivari a Stradivari.
0: Talk about instruments that are, in essence, playable in certain contexts. Where you, you know, in and preserving things so that they function. Because this isn't, you know, just something that is under glass or behind glass. Often there are instruments in your collection that need to be maintained in a way that, uh, you know, uh, uh, some some other curated item in another museum wouldn't have those special needs. So talk a little bit about that, about playability or functionality of items in the collection.
6: Certainly. Our, our primary job is to care and preserve the instruments so that they don't degrade over time, but for those instruments that are certainly playable then we have experts who will look at them and say, under what circumstances could they be played, and how much could they be played. So yeah. it depends on it depends on the material of the instrument. You know, brass and, and, and metal metal type instruments aren't going to degrade as as quickly or as completely as something like a string or a, or wood or something that's even more uh, more precious. So we have to adhere obviously to strict museum guidelines. But in the case of an instrument uh, like that early keyboard or the Stradivari violin, they they are playable instruments, but then our conservator has to look at it and say, what kind of uh, what kind of challenges might we be if we tune this instrument up so the strings are tight enough to play? Does it put pressure on things like the bridge of a violin, or does it put pressure on the wood that could eventually crack, or is it all intact? Is it is it ready to go? So, but if it comes out of the collection to where it is playable, they've already done all of their background work and they have no no issues at all. Yeah. Guitars are one of those as well that we're happy we have a few guitars in our collection that are playable and as an artist comes in we like to be able to hand a guitar uh, to an artist and say bring this to life this was Johnny Cash's guitar or this was Sean Colvin's guitar show tell us what you can do with this and have us have us hear what you can do with it
0: yeah oh it's so exciting tell us I have a list in front of me but what do you want to highlight from the galleries that are now open that weren't before um, you know, we'll put a link up on our website, and people can go to your website as well. But is there are there certain galleries that you think people would be in our remaining minute that we have to talk about? This S- super excited that they can now access.
6: Well, b- by all means, it's all about the story. So there's, a, whereas the collection used to be here's here's a bunch of violins and here's a bunch of clarinets and here's a here's a room full of keyboards. We've sort of interspersed it now. So there's not. A, There's not one particular room. You're going to walk into a room and you're going to find a connection and an inspiration point and and a place where you can connect the stories. Certainly the guitar gallery is is getting a lot of acclaim now because of the size of our guitar collection and how it's displayed. There's a good amount of of more interactivity going on on the first floor. So you've got listening stations, you've got Mm -hmm. multimedia, audio, and video that are there that people can punch up and they can hear. The music and spirituality section is very, very important. We go from Christian tradition to Jewish uh, to Buddhist. Buddhist, to Muslim, and show how musical instruments have influenced those faith traditions as well.
0: All right, Dwight Vaught, director of the National Music Museum in um, Vermilion. Those new galleries have just opened. Go down and check them out on the campus of the University of South Dakota. Dwight, we appreciate your time. Come back and tell us more stories and uh, more programs in the future.
6: Be happy to do that. Thank you very much.
0: And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you tomorrow and In the Moment. Kevin Wooster is going to be with us, and we're also going to check in on the plight of the piping plover and how this adorable little bird is uh, finding some new life there on the Missouri River. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. We thank you for listening.